Thank you for listening to the Christ the King Church podcast. We exist to help people know, love, and obey Jesus as Lord over all of life. For more information about our church, please visit us at ctksensi.com. Well, well, that was loud. Hello, hello, how are you? Good morning. It's good to see everybody. My name is Michael, and I am the lead pastor here. It's uh, good to see you. I'm glad to have you uh, worship with us this morning. And I'm back from a preaching break. Uh, it's been a couple of months, actually. Well, I, I preached a month ago, and so, but in the last two months, uh, I haven't preached much. So it's been too long, but I'm excited to get back into the gospel of Luke with you today. And I'm grateful for the other uh, preachers who have uh, delivered the word to you the last, uh, last few months. So over the next couple of weeks, um, here's what I want to do. The next couple of weeks, we're going to take a closer look at Jesus's power over the demonic realm. So it's uh, his power over evil spirits. And this is relevant. It's always relevant, but it's relevant, um, you know, nowadays, because as Christianity has declined in the modern Western world, there's been an increase of interest in things like New Age or witchcraft or the occult. So just one headline I, I saw recently, this is, um, I saw it it's from a few years ago, but I saw it recently. It's from Newsweek in 2018. Here's the headline, ready? The number of witches rises dramatically across the U.S. as millennials reject Christianity. So that's, that's Newsweek, right, from 2018. And so according to this survey, in 1990, there were 8,000 Wiccans. So that's a like a practice of witchcraft. And that's up to 340,000 in 2008. So that's, in an 18-year period of time, a significant increase in this interest in witchcraft. Now, in other parts of the world, um, especially third world countries, there are stories of evil spirits and people interacting with evil, or just the spirit world. That's more common in other places. But it's not so common here and so some people might think, well, that, you know, that's nonsense. That's, we, we know better than this. That's not real. Um, these are just made-up stories from people's overactive imaginations. But we shouldn't be so quick to dismiss these things. The Bible takes these things seriously. And we see Jesus ministering to people that are oppressed by demons. We see this in the New Testament. So uh, we should take it seriously, too. There are specific stories of demonic encounters in the New Testament, sprinkled throughout the Gospels and in the book of Acts. But there's more to this than meets the eye. There's actually this undercurrent of spiritual conflict in lots of the Gospel stories that's just below the surface. It's not as obvious to us as modern readers because we don't know all the context. It's not part of our world. So in the modern mind, stories about angels and demons and things like this can seem bizarre because it doesn't match our day-to-day -day experience. But to the ancient mind, this was part of their worldview. It was just part of their outlook in life. And not only that, but the, the Jewish expectations at the time of who the Messiah would be is somebody who would defeat the evil spirits. That's what they expected. 
And so the scriptures teach that there was this ancient angelic rebellion, and Jesus came to put those things back in order, to defeat the evil spirits and to restore things to the way God created them to be. So he won the decisive victory at the cross. And the gospel is a declaration that the demonic realm has been defeated, that Jesus accomplished what he came to accomplish. So today what I want to do is I want to read our text, and then I want to do a deeper dive into the, the background, the context of this story of angelic rebellion, and to show you how it's relevant to the gospels, okay? So let's look at Luke chapter 9, Luke chapter 9, and I want to read the story that Jason preached last week on through the story that we're going to look at today. So we're starting at Luke chapter 9, verse 18. Now it happened that as he, Jesus, was praying alone, the disciples were with him. And he asked them, who do the crowds say that I am? And they answered, John the Baptist. But others say, Elijah, and others that one of the prophets of old has risen. Then he said to them, but who do you say that I am? And Peter answered, the Christ of God. And he strictly charged and commanded them to tell this to no one, saying, The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. And he said to all, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words, of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in his glory and the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. But I tell you truly, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God. Now, about eight days after these sayings, he took with him Peter and John and James and went up on the mountain to pray. And as he was praying, the appearance of his face altered and his clothing became dazzling white. And behold, two men were talking with him, Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory and spoke of his departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. Now Peter and those who were with him were heavy with sleep, but when they became fully awake, they saw his glory and the two men who stood with him. And as the men were parting from him, Peter said to Jesus, Master, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah, not knowing what he had said. As he was saying these things, a cloud came and overshadowed them, and they were afraid as they entered the cloud. And a voice came out of the cloud saying, this is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. And when the voice had spoken, Jesus was found alone. And they kept silent and told no one in those days anything of what they had seen. This is God's word. So last week, whenever uh, Jason preached this, he finished talking about the location where uh, this took place. Now, the location is not mentioned in the Gospel of Luke, but it is mentioned in the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 16. And the location is a place called Caesarea Philippi. Now, you know I love maps, so I'm going to show you a map. 
So Caesarea Philippi is all the way up here. So we've got Galilee, Nazareth, here's uh, Bethlehem and Jerusalem. That's, this is where this area, Capernaum and Jerusalem, is, is where a lot of Jesus' ministry took place. But they're up here in this area, Caesarea Philippi, which is the base of a mountain range. So you see above it, there's this mountain range, and there's one mountain in particular called Mount Hermon. So that's Israel's tallest mountain. Let me show you a picture of the mountain. If we go to the next one, that's what Mount Hermon looks like. So it's this tallest mountain, huge. This mountain has a sinister history. It's associated with divine rebellion and with demonic powers. And they go all the way back to the book of Genesis. And I want to I show you that this morning. So there's this story in Genesis 6. Some of you may know it well. Some of you may have never heard of it. But the story from Genesis 6, it's a weird, cryptic story. But it's a story of a cosmic rebellion where angelic beings took human women as wives. And they spawned this race of offspring. And the offspring are called the Nephilim. Now, that's weird. I know that's weird, and we won't get into the weirdness of it. But in the Bible, it is, was considered an abomination. Um, Genesis 6, this was the thing that was the catalyst or the, the, the precipitating event that triggered the flood. So God had established this boundary in creation between the spiritual realm and the material realm. And these angelic beings transgressed this boundary that God had established. So the story in Genesis 6, it's only four verses long. It doesn't give you a lot of detail. But there's a lot more to the story that is sprinkled throughout the, the rest of the Bible. But it's recorded in other works that are outside the Bible. So other works that were um, popular among the Jewish believers at the time of Christ and before the time of Christ. And these works are preserved in the Dead Sea Scrolls. So these are very popular works that was very familiar with the people that would have been contemporary with Jesus. So even though these writings are not in the Bible, the stories that they tell were absolutely part of the worldview of the biblical authors. They show up. References to these writings, these stories, the references to them show up in some of the books of the Bible. In fact, one of the books, uh, which is called First Enoch, but it's quoted in the New Testament twice. It's quoted by Jude, and it's quoted by Peter in the book of Second Peter. Point being, these are important books, and these are books that were important to the believers at the time of Jesus. And the New Testament authors, they were familiar. It was, it was part of their, the religious landscape. All of these books make a big deal about where the angelic rebellion of Genesis 6 took place. They said it took place at Mount Hermon. So mountains were considered the dwelling place of the gods. And they said this mountain was where these angelic beings descended from the heavens. And they, they entered the world and, and they transgressed boundaries. Now here's another thing that's interesting. Pagan religions also teach a version of that same type of story, very similar, where angelic beings had, uh, had children with human women, except in the pagan version of that story, it was a good thing. Because they said that at the same time, these angelic beings taught human beings secret knowledge. They gave humans forbidden insight 
into, thing, into the knowledge of the gods. Things like uh, astrology and sorcery and advanced technology. These are secrets of the spiritual realm. And these things are written in the books that were popular among uh, Jewish people at the time of Christ. But the ancient pagan civilizations, Babylon being one of them, they used this information to build what they considered the superior society based on this forbidden knowledge. So they had wisdom and insight. They knew things that nobody else knew. They had knowledge given to them by the gods. And they used this information to build an advanced society. And they thought because of that, that made them superior. And they believed that that knowledge was given to them from the angelic beings that came down on this same mountain, Mount Hermon. And so what they did is at this mountain, they would build shrines and temples to pagan gods at this mountain. Now, here's the point of all this. Both Jews and non-Jews believed that Mount Hermon was ground zero for significant celestial events. So both Jews and non-Jews recognized that there is something that happened. There's some sort of backstory that happened, but they have different interpretations and writings about what happened. They interpret those events differently. So the non-Jewish pagan people, they believe that this intermingling of the material and spiritual realms was good. And so it was reflected in their pagan worship, and they built shrines and temples to idols. To them, it symbolized the superiority of their culture, the superiority of their civilization, the superiority of their pagan gods. Jews, the Jewish believers, they believed that what happened was evil and that God had established a boundary that should not have been crossed. And so whenever the angelic beings transgressed, this boundary was broken between the material and the spiritual realms. And so to the Jews, it symbolized this cataclysmic evil this, this thing that would invoke or provoke God's judgment over the demonic spirits and the satanic powers. And so the Holy Spirit inspired the scriptures to give an accurate account of what really happened, to reveal the truth behind the events that they all recognized that something had happened. So Genesis 6, written by Moses and other uh, writings of, of the biblical authors, they all recognized that this this is the true account of what happened, that that was a rebellion against the God who was their creator. And so what Genesis 6 teaches is that angelic beings transgressed that boundary that was a catalyst for the spread of evil through the world, that God judged the wickedness of the world by sending a flood and wiping out humanity. And God also judged the angelic beings who committed this act and imprisoned them until the final judgment. Now, that's not in Genesis 6. But that is in the book of 2 Peter. Genesis 6 just gives us a little slice of the story. But the backstory is referenced in 2 Peter. I want to read to you from 2 Peter chapter 2. Now, you've, you, if you've read through the Bible, this might have stood out to you as one of those weird passages. You're like, I have no idea what that's about. What Peter's referencing is this backstory that I've been describing to you. So here's 2 Peter 2, verses 4 and 5. And I won't read the whole, the whole section, but... It says, for if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell, which is a reference to the underworld, and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until the judgment. If he did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, the herald of righteousness, with seven others, when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly, 
Now, he goes on there, and he, it's a really long sentence that talks about a lot of other things too, but what, what Peter is doing here is he's referencing this ancient event that happened and said, hey, God judged them. God judged these wicked spirits for what they did, and God preserved Noah, and Peter's saying, hey, God will preserve us too. God will watch out for us, and he will carry us through trials in the same way. Okay, now all of that brings us back to Luke chapter 9 where Jesus is traveling with his disciples, and he ends up at Caesarea Philippi. So let's, let's pull the map up here again. So he's all the way up here, and you see Caesarea Philippi is right at the base of Mount Hermon. What's Jesus doing all the way up there? And why does the, the, the Gospel of Matthew go out of his way to point out this geographical marker. Most of his ministry was further south, in Galilee, Jerusalem, places like that. Well, um, some Bible scholars, um, and I'm, I think they argue persuasively, and, and I agree, that Jesus chose this location deliberately to make a theological point. And it's a point that his disciples and the ancient readers of the gospel accounts, they would immediately recognize, because they all believed this. They all knew this backstory. So Jesus chose this location to reveal his true identity as the Messiah, the King, the Son of God, the one who will defeat the ancient serpent from Genesis 3. So Jesus came not only to forgive sin, but he also came to defeat evil and the cosmic powers of, of sin and death and Satan and to restore order to the cosmos the way God had created it. So he chose that location to make this announcement. Now, what I want to do is I want to walk through this text again, now that we've heard the backstory, and I want to point out to you a few of the references, okay? So let's go back to verse 18. Now, it happened that as he was praying alone, the disciples were with him, and he asked them, who do the crowds say that I am? And they answered, John the Baptist, but others say Elijah, and others that one of the prophets of old has risen. Then he said to them, but who do you say that I am? And Peter answered, the Christ of God. Now, this is the first time that Jesus' true identity as the Messiah is out in the open with the disciples. Now, in Luke chapter 4, Jesus casts out a demon now, the demon knew who he was. The demon of Luke 4 says, I know who you are, the Holy One of God. And Jesus said, be silent. And he cast the demon out because he wasn't ready for that to be revealed yet. But the demons knew who he was. The humans, they didn't know who he was. So now this, this revelation that he is the Christ of God, it's out in the open. And the location of Caesarea Philippi was part of the message. It was home to all kinds of shrines and pagan temples. One in particular is called the Cave of Pan. I want to show you a picture of this. Jason mentioned this last week too. This is the Cave of Pan. This is at Caesarea Philippi at the base of Mount Hermon. Now, the Cave of Pan was dedicated to the, to the god Pan. You know, Pan, the, uh, you know, the half goat, half human guy. Now, this cave, uh, before, there was an earthquake a couple hundred years ago, but before that, it had water that would just flow out of this cave from underneath somehow. And this, this cave was deep and inaccessible. There was, they, they, no matter what they would do to try to measure it, there was no way that they could measure how deep it was. So it seemed to them like this bottomless pit, and it filled with water, 
And it was believed to be, by the pagans at the time, the access point to the underworld. Because they said, that's where these evil spirits are kept in prison, under this mountain where this thing went down, this horrible thing. Now, the pagans believed, well, that's where we, we worship, these pagan gods. But the Jews believed, well, that was the access to the underworld. And that's where they're kept in prison. So uh, the, they believed that the fertility gods could use this as an access point between the material world and the underworld. And so it, it, it would be like considered the gates of the underworld, or literally the gates of hell would be what this cave represented. Now, let me show you um, another picture. This is what, what it would have looked like before, you know, in its original form, before, you know, things fell apart over, over the years. Several shrines and temples are built around this area because the pagans believed that this was an access point to the underworld and that the fertility gods would travel back and forth. And so they would, uh, the Greeks and the Romans both built these temples there and they would practice horrible things like cult prostitution and other things I won't describe. But the, the Jews, Jesus and his disciples would have recognized this as kind of the red light district. This is, this is a, a weird, dark place. Uh, this is where things that nobody should talk about uh, happened. And so it was, a, it was a really dark place and everybody knew it. So you, you may be familiar with the same account that we're reading here from Matthew. So Matthew 16, verse 18, after, G, after Peter says, you are the Christ, Jesus responded, you are Peter, and on this rock, I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. So do you see what Jesus is doing here? He's standing at what was believed to be the gates of hell, and he's there, and Peter says, you are the Christ, you are the son of the living God. You are the Messiah, the one who will defeat the cosmic evil powers. You are the one we've been waiting for. And then Jesus says, you're Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. He's making a theological point. He's not saying, I want to purchase property and build a church building here. He's saying, I'm going to build a people. I'm going to build the church. So it, I don't think it's inappropriate to consider this a taunt. Jesus is taunting the devil. He's declaring his supremacy over the demonic realm. He's announcing that he is the one who indeed will deal decisively with sin and rebellion and the demonic powers once and for all. So he's telling them, this is war. Your days are numbered. I'm going on the offense. I am rescuing my people from your power, liberating them. And I will build a church, a people that are loyal to me a people from my own possession, and there's not a power in all of hell that can withstand it. That's pretty exciting if you're a disciple, right? Jesus is saying that, and you're like, oh, man. You know, they're high-fiving each other. I'm like, let's go. Come on, Jesus, let's go. Verse 21, and he strictly charged and commanded them to tell this to no one, saying, the Son of Man must suffer many things, and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and the scribes, and be killed, and on the third day be raised. And he said to all, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me, for whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. 
For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words, of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in his glory and the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. But I tell you truly, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God. So the disciples, they could not have comprehended this. I mean, this would have been like, I mean, imagine just feeling this, this elation that he is the Christ and that he's going to overcome all the powers of darkness. And then he says, well, you know, I need to suffer and be killed. And if you want to follow me, you've got to suffer too. You got to, if you want to save your life, you need to lose it. They would have been totally perplexed by that. So what Jesus is, is indicating here is that the decisive factor in this spiritual battle will be Jesus' suffering and his humiliation and his death on the cross. But that will only appear to be a defeat. This is the paradox. It will actually be his moment of triumph because the cross precedes the crown. And not only that, but it's the same with the disciples. They may appear to be conquered, but they will never be defeated because the gates of hell will not overcome the church. Now, they couldn't have understood this. This would have been confusing and disorienting and incomprehensible. And so right after this, Jesus takes three of these disciples and gives them this beautiful reassurance that this is God's plan. And what these three disciples are about to see is a glimpse of the radiant glory of Christ and they're about to hear the voice of God. So verse 28. Now about eight days after these sayings, he took with him Peter and John and James and went up on the mountain to pray. Matthew and Mark call it a high mountain. And most scholars agree that the mountain he went up on is Mount Hermon. Verse 29. And as he was praying, the appearance of his face was altered and his clothing became dazzling white. And behold, two men were talking with him, Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory and spoke of his departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. Now Peter and those who were with him were heavy with sleep. But when they became fully awake, they saw his glory and the two men who stood with him. And as the men were parting from him, Peter said to Jesus, Master, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah, not knowing what he said. Clearly, what was happening to them was something that is indescribable. Jesus' face and his clothing were radically altered. His clothes became dazzling white, it says. Somehow there was this, this intense brightness that was radiating out of his body. So this was sort of like an, an, an unveiling this, this, this way for the glory of his divine nature to, to pierce through and to shine out from his physical body. And so God was somehow allowing these disciples to gaze at Jesus in his essence, his unfiltered holiness, his undiluted beauty was on display and it was all inspiring and they were struck they were able to see the pure and perfect light of his being. His, it's, it was transcendent, this awe-inspiring wonder, something that no human eye has ever been able to see. They were looking at this image of Jesus being transfigured. What does that word mean? <laughs> 
It's a word that's used to describe something that you just can't describe. And so he sees a couple of dudes talking to Jesus, and he recognizes somehow that it's Moses and Elijah. Well, these two guys represent all of the Old Testament expectations of who the Messiah is and would be. Moses represented the Old Testament law, and Elijah represented the prophets. So the two of them there with Jesus, giving affirmation to who Jesus is. Verse 34, and as he was saying these things, a cloud came and overshadowed them. And they were afraid as they entered the cloud. And a voice came out of the cloud saying, this is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. And when the voice had spoken, Jesus was found alone, and they kept silent and told no one in those days anything of what they had seen. Whenever you see a cloud in the Bible, rarely is it simply a meteorological phenomenon. The word cloud almost always indicates some theological import. There's some, something divine and spiritual happening. So the theological significance here is that this cloud represents the presence of God on this mountain. And Jesus leads Peter and James and John into this cloud. They stepped inside this cloud. They walked inside of this unseen spiritual realm, the realm of angels, the realm of God himself. And that's when they heard this voice kind of reverberating from within the cloud, somehow speaking from within the cloud. And it was the voice of the Father. And what did the Father say? This is my Son, my chosen one. Listen to him. The Father is giving affirmation. He is exactly who he says he is. And that would have been this comforting reassurance after having just been told that he was going to die and be rejected. And not only that, they would have to do the same. And they would have to cling tightly to these words of the Father in the coming days as the Son of God, the Chosen One, was crucified and was buried in a grave. But three days later, he would rise again. So that's the story in the background. I want to make two points of application from this. Two points of application about the victory of Christ and what this means for us. Here's the first one. Christians can live with the confident hope that Jesus has already defeated every evil spirit and demonic power. Christians, we can live with the confident hope that Jesus has already defeated every evil spirit and every demonic power. So the biblical authors make it clear that the victory of Jesus includes both the material realm that we occupy and the spiritual realm that we don't see. The victory of Christ encompasses both. So the victory of Christ is cosmic in its scope. That Jesus' death and burial and resurrection will ultimately reconcile 
these two realms, the, the material and the spiritual realms. I want to read you a text from Colossians chapter 1. Colossians chapter 1. Listen to this. This is he referring to Jesus. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. Not meaning first as in he was created, but firstborn as a title of preeminence. For by him all things were created. But what things? Things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, spiritual powers of evil. He created him. All things were created through him and for him. He is before all things, not only in time, but in supremacy. And in him, all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. And through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by his blood on the cross. It's a cosmic victory. And you who once were alienated and hostile in mind, you used to be on that team. Every one of us. We used to be on the other team, the evil team. Doing evil deeds. He is now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. Now at the cross, Jesus didn't just die for our sins. He did that, but he didn't just or merely die for our sins. At the cross, Jesus was triumphing over every evil power. We tend to think that the gospel is all about us, and it is about us, but it's not all about us. It includes us, but the gospel is much larger than that. The gospel is the good news that Jesus defeated evil at the source. He took the fight to the source. And so we need not be afraid. The gates of hell are defensive structures. And Jesus is building his church. And his church, we're the ones on offense. We're the ones who are ransoming and taking people back. We're proclaiming the gospel and helping to rescue them from the evil one so that they can be brought into the family of God, into the church. That's my first application point. Here's my second one. Sometimes the church's victory in Christ will look like defeat. Sometimes the church's victory will look like defeat, and that's where faith comes in. Because we walk by faith, not by sight, right? We don't walk by what it looks like. We walk by what we know to be true because of what God's word tells us. So we can't define victory or defeat for the church in worldly terms because Jesus' kingdom is not of this world. Jesus promised the gates of hell will not prevail over the church. 
And yet often it seems like in our experience or from appearances that the gates of hell are overcoming the church and that the church is losing, right? I mean, there are times when we might ask ourselves, where's the power in the church? Does the modern church look victorious? Does it look like we're overcoming the gates of hell? Not really, <laughs> for being honest. But that does not mean that we've lost because appearances can be deceiving. We're not taught to look to go by appearances. We are taught by Jesus that the cross precedes the crown. And so it's popular these days to dunk on the church and to highlight all the problems and to focus on scandals and abuse. And sometimes it's needed. I mean, it's like sometimes the church just needs to, to deal with its own problems, deal with its own junk. And so that's valid. You know, the Protestant reformers said the church is reformed and it's always reforming. There's always a need to be reforming the church. So sometimes some Christians can be too pessimistic about the church. They can be too negative, overly focused on the problems of the church and the pain and the, all of those things. But, you know, at the same time, some Christians can be too triumphalistic about the church and neglect to see the real problems that need to be addressed. And in my opinion, either way, both views focus too much on the church as an institution and not enough on the church as the people of God, which that's who the church is. It's the people of God. Ever since the New Testament days, the kingdom of God has grown and expanded while simultaneously experiencing setbacks and defeats. They both happen. Jesus did not promise that the church as an institution would always advance and would always have bigger budgets and bigger buildings and, and rapid growth and exciting things going on. Jesus did promise that the church as the people of God, they would always overcome. Because the true church is the people. The blood-bought, spirit-filled, Bible-believing, Jesus-loving, faithful, obedient, radically ordinary people of God. The gates of hell will not prevail against the people of God. No power of hell can ever overcome that. Satan may corrupt institutions, but he can never conquer a Christian soul. So if you're looking for the church's power and its programming or marketing or strategies or flashiness, you're looking in the wrong place. The real power of the church is ordinary Christians, spirit-filled, faithful, obedient to King Jesus. That's the power. There's no power of hell that can overcome that. The gates of hell cannot overcome the power of a little Christian child singing and dancing to the worship music in church. The gates of hell cannot overcome the power of a student who is standing firm in the faith even when their faith is being attacked and even when it costs them to do so. The gates of hell cannot overcome the power of a Christian man who risks his reputation or even his job to share the gospel. The gates of hell cannot overcome the power of a Christian woman who is new to the faith and learning to forgive for the first time. The gates of hell cannot overcome the power of a Christian man who can't carry a tune in a bucket but sings his guts out whenever the church gathers to worship. The gates of hell cannot overcome the power of a Christian woman repenting of gossip and trusting God in prayer. The, the gates of hell cannot overcome the power of a Christian man repenting of his laziness and learning to work hard for the glory of God. 
The gates of hell cannot overcome the power of city group leaders who open their homes week in and week out for people to come and gather and fellowship and share the gospel with one another and to repent of sin and encourage one another and open the Bible together. The gates of hell cannot overcome the power of a Christian mother who tirelessly ministers to her children. The gates of hell cannot overcome the power of a Christian father who reads the Bible and prays with his wife and with his children faithfully. The gates of hell cannot overcome the power of a Christian granny who faithfully prays for her lost grandchildren for decades upon decades and sees them coming into the kingdom of God. The gates of hell cannot overcome the power of a church that gathers every week to worship God in word and in sacrament. The gates of hell cannot overcome the power of ordinary Christians faithfully living ordinary lives to the glory of God. Amen. So if you want to see the power of the church, don't look to the institutions or the organizations. Look at the ordinary people of God living their lives faithfully in surrendered obedience to King Jesus. That's where you'll see the truth of his words. He is building his church. The gates of hell will not prevail against it. It will endure forever. Let's pray. We thank you, Jesus, for the promise of your word and the hope that you are building your church. And that you have overcome all the powers of hell and sin and darkness and death. You are victorious. Thank you, Jesus, that you led the way and you modeled for us the truth that your kingdom is not of this world. Sometimes things don't look, don't look right. But there is a reality that we don't see. And that is that you are always victorious. And the cross precedes the crown. Help us, Lord, to live in the hope that you have overcome. Lord Jesus, I pray that you will strengthen us as your people. Strengthen us to believe. Give us the faith to believe what you say in your word. Lord, help us to live in the confident hope to not be afraid, to know that as we come to the table and we eat the body and blood of Jesus, that we are celebrating a feast of your victory, that at the cross, that was your triumph. So Lord, I pray that you inhabit our praise. Be glorified in our voices. We thank you, Jesus, for that hope that promise that you have secured the victory, that eternal victory, and the gates of hell will not overcome your church. We pray this in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. We are Christ the King Church. For more information about our church, please visit us at ctkcincy.com.